everyone, and welcome back to the Practical Family Podcast. I am your host, Jennifer Bryant, and our guest today is Dr. Sharon Selene. Sharon is a licensed clinical psychologist with more than 30 years experience, and she is a top expert in the field of ADHD, anxiety, and learning differences regarding mental health challenges and their impact on school and family dynamics. I've invited Dr. Celine here today to talk to us specifically about the effects that ADHD have on a child who is a part of a family and the ultimate effect of that behavior on family. So welcome Dr. Celine to the Practical Family Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. I really am excited to talk to you. Oh, good. It was such a joy. It was such a joy to see you. Uh, I think I first saw you on someone else's uh, video cast uh, a couple of months ago. And you really have been an answer to my prayer personally, because I, uh, I have found myself researching this topic. Um, because, well, I mean, a, a lot of us kind of suspect that our kids at some point may be dealing with these issues or, you know, could it be ADHD? Is it just mm -hmm. because they're a kid or is it just because they're a little boy? And so I'm looking into this now as it relates to my own son's specific strengths of, <laughs> you know, that we'll go over a little bit later. But I wanted to ask you questions right out of your book, actually, the book that I really enjoyed reading. It's called What Your ADHD Child Wishes you knew working together to empower kids for success in school and life. So with your 30 years of experience, Dr. Celine, what drove you to write the book, to put it actually into writing? That's a great question, Jennifer. What I found in my workshops, in my sessions with kids and families, is that kids were telling me one thing about their experiences and adults in the world were telling me something else about those kids' experiences. And there was a gap. And I really wanted to shrink that gap. I wanted adults to have a better sense of what was going on for kids and how they could reach kids so the kids would share with them what their experiences are and also how they could contemplate interventions that included kids in the process of solving some of the problems that they're facing in their lives. A lot of times, well-meaning adults believe that they think that they know what's best for kids, and they very well might. But without including kids in the brainstorm or incorporating one piece of an idea that a child has, you lose some of the child's buy-in to the solution. And kids with ADHD in particular spend a lot of time in their lives listening to the ways that they could do things differently, i.e. better. Mm -hmm. And so they don't feel empowered in the choices that they have in terms of what they're supposed to do with their behavior or their schoolwork. So we want to turn that on its head a little bit and include them. And that's why I wrote this book. Absolutely. I love the inclusivity that you talk about here because it's not just an answer. It's not just as we were talking about before the episode began. You know, there are books out there that address what parents should do. So here's maybe a checklist that you can try, you know. But what I notice is different about your book is that you include so many testimonies from children. There are so many quotes with their name or their age, and it's giving us a very clear view into their world so that we don't have to sort of guess what's going on. And I'm so glad that you grabbed 
a lot of those firsthand testimonies and included them in that book. Thanks so much for saying that, because I have to tell you, when I wrote my book and I was trying to find an agent, I got several letters back from agents who said, we don't think all these quotes are going to work. You know, just essentially, you know, find, do five profiles of five different kids and that will work. And I said to my mentor and my writing coach and consultant, I said, I don't want to do that. That's not the book I want to write. And so I'm really glad that I stuck with my intuition and it really warms my heart that that's what you said. Thank you. Oh, yes, absolutely. And so let's talk a little bit about what we mean when we talk about ADHD or even ADD, as it's sometimes referred to. What I notice in children and including my own child, this inattentiveness, you know, the earmark seems to be their short, short attention span. (laughs) And I know that that's not all there is to it because we also see sometimes uncontrolled anger, uncontrolled emotion, otherwise maybe sadness, just frustration about not being able to express what they need to express or not being able to stop doing what they're doing or start doing something else. Basically transitions are very difficult for kids. Now this is just what I've noticed as an educator in the system, but what can you tell us from your background, counseling and sitting with these kids and the brain research behind that? Well, ADHD is a chronic condition that it relates to a persistent dysregulation of activity, attention, and focus. So we see more of these inconsistencies and dysregulation than we would see that it's typical in a child of the same age. And so when I say dysregulation, that's the opposite of regulation, of control. So, you know, rather than saying out of control, it's a nicer way to say you're not exactly balanced in this area. All of us have executive functioning skills, and these skills reside in the frontal lobes, the prefrontal cortex, which is right behind your forehead. We all have strengths and we all have challenges. It's just that people who live with ADHD their challenges outnumber their strengths significantly. And there are 11 executive functioning skills, and they touch on all of the things that you brought up. Impulse control, emotional control, sustained attention, shifting, flexibility, working memory, prioritizing, organizing, planning, time management, initiation, motivation, and the last executive functioning skill to develop around the age of 25 in neurotypical brains is what I call self-awareness or self-evaluation. It's also known as metacognition. And this is the ability to understand yourself honestly and to also be able to make you know, appropriate choices and decisions, exercise what we call good judgment. And so this matures, as I said, around age 25 in neurotypical brains, but the ADHD brain matures a little more slowly. And that has to do with the connectivity in various pathways of the brain, which I'm not going to go into today, but essentially there can be up to a three-year delay. So you'll see an eight-year-old who acts more like a five-year-old in a number of these areas. You'll have a 15-year-old who acts like a 12-year-old because development is not linear. And so you'll see progress in some of the areas and then setbacks. And so kids with ADHD, their frontal lobes connect with the rest of their brain fully somewhere around the age of 28. It doesn't mean that they can't live independently before then, but they're going to be challenged and they have to learn systems, techniques, and tools for shoring up those executive functioning challenges that they have. Medication can help 
make the connections between neurons and the pathways that are affected most by dopamine deficits and norepinephrine deficits, which are trademarks of having ADHD, but they don't teach the skills. So pills are super helpful in facilitating those connections and helping kids be available to learn the skills and retain them, but they don't teach those skills. That's up to teachers, parents, coaches, uh, friends, etc. Oh, that is a great point. And I love how you made the distinction between what the medication actually does. And, you know, we may hit on this topic a little bit later because choosing to medicate your child, as you've mentioned in your book, is a very personal choice. And I think that parents need to feel comfortable that they have as much of the understanding and information as possible before we just kind of throw what would seem to be a solution at it. But what you're saying is, you know, separating the ability to teach those skills or the source from which those skills will come is not necessarily the job of medication. It's still a large part of our relationship with our child. Yes, and there of these 11 executive functioning skills, they can be divided in two groups, into hot skills, which are conscious skills. Those are things like time management, impulse control, organization planning, and there are cool skills. And those are things like sustained attention, working memory, and self-awareness. Like you're not necessarily aware that you're making a poor decision until, oh my gosh, you've made that choice, right? So the hot skills respond really well to direct instruction, and it's easier to work on those than it is the cooler skills. Although those do respond to instruction, it takes longer. And medication can help you know, facilitate that process in both types of skills. But it's not for everyone. And often what I see, and my pediatrician friends see as well, is that for younger children, kids who are elementary school age children, parents want to try the skill building stuff first. You don't necessarily want to go to medication because their kids' intellectual capacity can overcome some of the tensional challenges, right? Mm. But when kids move to middle and high school, the attentional challenges are greater. You're now shifting classes. You have different teachers. You have to be more responsible for your work. There's more reliance on independence. And there may not be the capacity to recall what you need to remember or manage all of those competing interests. And so when the challenges for the executive functioning skills exceed their capacity, medication can be particularly helpful to get you sort of zoned in where you need to so that you can absorb those skills that you're learning. Thank you for that clarification. That makes so much sense. Now, on to very practical scenario. So what most of our families who listen to this podcast are dealing with now is most of them are in the teaching and molding stage of childhood, whether it's from the toddlers to up through the teenagers. But basically, most of us are in that area where we're schooling our children. And so we're managing them every day, whether we send them to school or homeschool them. It seems to be more about parents needing to manage emotion, manage Mm-hmm. all the sibling interaction, the rivalry, the outbursts, the responses. And so let's talk about how the behavior of an ADHD child affects their family and what we need to do uh, or start looking at as a family or maybe as parents to see that a bit differently. That's a fantastic question. So when a child lives with ADHD, the whole family lives with ADHD. Mm-hmm. Um, emotional control is a very common 
struggle for many, many kids with ADHD. I hesitate to say most, but a lot of them. And what that means is that, that these kids have big feelings, they're intense feelings, and they can overwhelm the thinking brain very quickly. Mm -hmm. And so they're already challenged executive functioning skills are even more challenged. They're weaker in these areas for managing big feelings, and then they have more intense. It's kind of like a you know, a double bind here, right? But what we want to do is help kids understand what triggers them. And we want to understand what triggers us. And the way we're going to do that is by noticing what kinds of signals we're getting from our bodies that we're heating up that we're becoming activated. And kids are great at understanding this. Do, does your stomach get tight? Do you get a headache? Does your voice get louder? Do you start perspiring? Identify those things for yourself and for your kids. Those are signals that they're headed off the cliff, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? I think of the Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote. You know, it's like you, all of a sudden you realize you're, you've run off the side of the, and there's no land left and you're about to drop. That's what happens with these big feelings. Kids mm -hmm. often say they feel like overwhelmed. It's like a tidal wave of emotion and they can't keep their head above water. So we want to help them understand that we're here from them in those moments. I talk about this in my book about creating a plan for success using the technique or the tools of stop, think, and act. And so you have to plan for these emotional meltdowns rather than being surprised every time they occur. It's like, okay, we have meltdowns. This is a particular time of day when we have meltdowns. How could we strategize about that? I mean, there's often this witching hour between four or five and six and seven. So somewhere between four and seven, I guess, where kids just can't really hold it together. You know, they've been holding it together pretty well all day, even for homeschooled kids. You may be taking your kids to groups or having particular lessons. And so they can't, they sort of are tired of holding it together and they kind of let everything go. And that's when the chance of these emotional upsets is greater. So we, we want to try to plan for that by understanding what the signs are that they're happening, figuring out what we're going to do to take a break when that's happening. And your kids are great sources of information. Do they need a hug? Do they want to hear a story? Do they want to go to their room and listen to music or play with the cat? You yourself may need to go into the bathroom and wash your hands or your face and say something encouraging like, I know we can get through this, we've done it before. So offer some time, make a time when you're not in a meltdown to strategize about what you can do when one's coming on. Post it on your fridge so you can refer to it. And you're talking to us as parents, right? <laughs> but mm -hmm. We need to have our own plan for controlling our emotional triggers because, oh, I tell you what, I respond in anxiety to my son when his anger gets high. Like mm -hmm. this week, just this week, he's excellent with his hands. He works building things so beautifully and he gives a lot of attention to that. But in the midst of putting a project together, his anger kind of goes through the roof when he doesn't get it right, when he misses mm -hmm. a piece, when, you know, understandable. All of us need to learn to persevere under that. But what I find my brain going to, I think, is a combination of the way that I was raised, maybe, or just this philosophy of parenting that's come down in the last maybe 40 years or something, that you have to teach your kids how to, well, number one, persevere under hard things. But, but that looks very authoritative and very, maybe sometimes harsh. And it's kind of like a suck it up mentality. You know, just do it, do the hard thing, you know, get through it. 
And as much as I can try to think that I'm being a cheerleader, sometimes it's not as effective because what I end up doing is making him push and persevere instead of helping him with the actual big feeling. Well, it's a tough line to walk, right, Jennifer? Because the, the thing is that, you know, the because I said so parenting philosophy of our parents' generation, and I'm quite a bit older than you, but I grew up with it, and many people I know also grew up with it, that it doesn't work because it doesn't teach any lasting skills. Mm-hmm. And I'm all about teaching skills. And for kids with ADHD, they need those skills. It's very important that they develop some ability to manage themselves effectively. And so punishment doesn't teach anything. It just teaches you what to avoid. Incentives, what we call empathic parenting, where you demonstrate kindness and compassion to your child, working in your relationship to have them do things is much more effective. So instead of saying, you're gonna do this or you're gonna lose something, you say, if you want to earn, your TV show with me after you have your, then you need to put your pajamas on or we're not going to be doing that. Instead, we're going to be folding your laundry. So we're going to be together anyway. It's just what we're doing is up to you. Mm. And that helps kids make choices. I also think it's important for kids with ADHD to have the option of what I call take back of the day, to basically have something in the day that doesn't go the way they want, and for them to have a moment to reflect and ask themselves, is this what I want for my take back? You yourselves as parents can have have take backs, and I certainly did raising my kids, and they'd be like, oh my God, it's so horrible having a therapist for a mother, blah, blah, blah. And I'd be like, is that your take back for the day? My other favorite thing I used to say is fresh is for vegetables. So do you want to say that in a different way? So we, instead of yelling at them, don't you dare talk to me, we offer them a chance through redirection. And that helps kids not only feel better about themselves because they're not wrong, they're having an option to shift, okay? But it also helps our relationship. So we're not working out of fear because fear is not what we want to inject into our relationships. We want kids to cooperate because they love us. Now, I know that parents of teenagers are listening and they're saying, oh my gosh, what about, you know, adolescent pushback? They don't care about the relationship. And I'd say, actually, they do. Mm. You still matter to them. That's a facade. That's a persona they're generating so they can separate from you, right? So you have to stay steady. Maybe they don't want to watch a TV show with you after dinner like they used to, but that doesn't mean that they want you to yell at them about how, you know, what a jerk they are either. You know, speak from your heart. I feel blah, blah, blah when you blah, blah, blah because. Yes, I hear what you're saying, Dr. Celine. And the difference between how we use our words as parents is what I'm hearing you say. We don't always have to be asserting that control. What I'm noticing in my own parenting too is that the kids respond much better to me. Number one, when I include them in Uh the decision because it helps them to feel valued and respected, seen, 
heard, understood. You know, you talk about this a bit in your book, but I've been mentioning it here on the podcast for a while because I have my own feelings of, wow, okay, when I feel like I'm not strong enough as a mom, when I need to jump out of my feelings of inadequacy, it's because I need to feel seen, heard, and loved, you know, and, and understood. You know, do you get where I'm coming from? And my kids probably need the same thing. But when I'm just concerned about the to-do list or the chore schedule, Mm-hmm. And that's all the outcome I want to see. Do they feel that? And they don't feel seen or heard or loved by me unless it's really about them and they have more of a say over what's going on during the day. Um, and it's natural to have moments like that. I mean, we're not perfect. We're going to lose it. We're going to get frustrated with our kids. And that's okay. It's okay to say, I'm really frustrated and I'm angry at you right now. That's an honest and accountable statement. It's another thing to say, what's wrong with you? Why can't you do what I ask? Those are very different. And they, the response that you're going to get is very different. And so we want to you know, try as much as we can to come forward with our best selves, of course, and to practice some self-compassion because you're not going to get it right all the time. Mm. And neither is your kid. And so instead of being mad at yourself when you lose it, sit down with them afterwards and say, you know what? I lost it. And I, I'm not super proud of that. I was really frustrated. That shows them how they can manage their own feelings when they lose it in the future. You're modeling for them what it's like to be a normal human being who has ups and downs and short temper sometimes and impatience at others. Absolutely. This actually flows quite well into the five C's that you talk about in your book. I love this because it gives us a very clear roadmap to take back that maybe that heightened emotion that's happening in the home, not because of the child or the children who are struggling with this, but it helps the whole family to kind of recenter and focus on what we can do in a positive way. So can you talk about what those five C's are and how they affect both the parents and the children? Of course. So the five C's are self-control, compassion, collaboration, consistency, and celebration. And these five C's came out of dozens and dozens of conversations I had with kids and with parents over the years. Um, The first C, self-control, is you manage yourself first as a parent before you try to control your child. And this is because if we are off balance, we are not in our best thinking brain or our best emotional brain. If you have ever flown, it's kind of like the oxygen mask on a plane. You put your mask on yourself and then you put it on a child. You don't say put it on your child first because then you're hyperventilating. So we want to actually, again, as I said earlier, notice when are the times when we're becoming dysregulated, figure out what we need to do to put ourselves on track. And my favorite thing to do, even now, you know, and I have children who are in their early 20s, is go to the bathroom. You know, I will go to the bathroom like, oh, it's a little tense here. I'll go to the bathroom. And you know, I'll wash my hands, I'll maybe read a magazine, like look at some pictures in a magazine, whatever I need to do to bring it down, just for a few minutes. And even if there's chaos on the other side of your door, you have your, you know, seven and nine-year-old banging on the door, mommy, get out of there. Kids understand that people have to go to the bathroom by themselves. So manage yourself and then you can work with your kids because you will have taken a few minutes to just reassure yourself that you can get through this. And so the next one, compassion. 
you talked a little bit about this, having compassion and grace for ourselves as parents, because we're going to mess up and we need mm-hmm. to apologize. Absolutely. <laughs> but what well, we, do it look like for our children too? Right. So we want to accept our kids for who they are. We want to meet them where they are, not where we think they should be. And we want to accept ourselves too. Practicing compassion with kids means leaning into and nurturing a positive parent-child attunement and relationship. And we want to convey to kids that we understand that they're doing the best they can at certain moments with the limited tools they have available to them, just like we are. You know, we have limited resources and they do too. And so for some, for kids, particularly with ADHD, who struggle because of working memory challenges or processing speed challenges, access what they know in any other time is the right choice, except in that moment when they're hot and bothered, we need to offer them some compassion. And compassion does not necessarily look like enabling behavior or being too nice. I mean, I think that's what a lot of parents are worried about. They're worried that if they show too much love, that it's coddling, that it's babying. And that's not necessarily true. Compassion is about being real. Mm. It's about being in the moment. It's Mm. about being mindful. That's what compassion is. And, you know, I'm not a psychologist who believes that parents should kowtow to their children. You know, I've seen plenty of families of parents of four-year-olds asking the four-year-olds, so, so what, what do you want to do? You know, what do you think about this? And I will say to them, is this really what you want to do? Ask your child, you know, what they think is the right next thing to do. You know, there are times, some, maybe if you're playing on the playground, that's fine. But if you're trying to get out of the house to go somewhere, this may not be the time for a process conversation, right? Sometimes you have choices and sometimes you don't. And that's okay. Exactly. 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 It's the sometimes rule. And here's the thing. Kids understand the sometimes rule. They do. They do. And I've noticed that it speaks to boundaries for them too. They appreciate those boundaries. And I think this is going to speak to consistency when we get there. But first, before we do that, let's talk about collaboration. What what kids told me over and over again is they want to be included in decisions that are made about them, particularly Mm -hmm. as kids mature. But even young kids have some idea of what makes sense to them and how their brains work. And for, as I said earlier, for kids who spend a lot of time hearing about how they could do things differently, i.e. better, you know, their self-esteem sinks. And when we include them, the chances of them participating are much higher because they have some buy-in. And this is why we have to use incentive-based parenting. Incentives are not bribes. You don't say, here, watch your TV and then go do your homework. It's the flip side. You do your homework and then you earn you know, your TV time or you earn your time with me to play cards. And if we're not playing cards and you haven't earned it, we're unloading the dishwasher. We're still together, but the choice of the activity is different. So you want really to work with your child. It's very important. Okay, so the next C is consistency then. What does this look like with the parent and then with the child? It does not look like perfection. So let's just throw that out the window. Thank you so much. Consistency (laughs) is not about perfection. It's about steadiness. Okay, Mm. what really surprised me in the numerous conversations I had with kids with ADHD is they don't expect their parents to be perfect. They actually accept their parents for who they are a little bit more than the parents might accept 
their kids, right? But what really is very confusing for these concrete thinkers is when parents say they're going to do one thing, I'm never cleaning your room again. And then when your child's off at a play date, you clean their room. Because they're like, well, do you want me to clean my room or don't you want me to clean my room? Or I'm going to take this away from you, but then I'm not. You know, I worked with one father and he took away his kid's birthday party because they couldn't get ready for church on time and they were late for church. And the whole time they were in church, their 10 years, 10 year, is almost 10 year old. So like, dad, this is so unfair and crying. And he called me. So it's like, Dr. Sharon, I'm in a real pickle. I'm like, oh, you're in a real pickle right? Because you said you were going to do something that you really have no intention of doing. So now you got to backpedal. Now you got to switch. So consistency is about really trying to maintain steadiness and helping your kids understand that there are exceptions. Mm -hmm. That's the sometimes rule. You know, you get to play outside before dinner until six o'clock, but oh my gosh, I dropped a glass on the floor and there's glass everywhere. You get an extra 15 minutes today, and then you clean up the glass, and then when they come in for dinner, you say, this is not the new normal. I dropped a glass. That's why you had extra time. So pointing out the exceptions and the reasons even behind that. What I find, and I'm just going to speak for myself, because the consistency for me, I have to battle with this in my mind, because I have to make sure that I'm not maybe changing the rule that I set for my own convenience, mm -hmm. you know? Mommy's extra tired today, so that means that you know, when I took away your TV time earlier that, oh, I forgot about it because I was too tired or I didn't hold it as firmly maybe in my mind as it could have been because mm -hmm. again, because I prioritized other stuff as an adult, but that was me doing a disservice to my child because it was showing them the inconsistency of, you know, is my word worth anything then anymore? And I had to come to terms with that for myself because my husband mm -hmm. then couldn't get on the same page when it was the day that I decided to be lenient about the no TV rule. And it just kind of throws things off. So I had to accept responsibility for that as an adult and know that it's more important in the long run for my kids to feel the consequences of their choices. And it's not, even if we're not, you know, punishing them, we're not being authoritative, but we're trying to carry over that consistency. I have to work toward that as well. Like I have to make sure that that is followed through because it deals with trust. Absolutely. And sometimes, you know, you, you really need a partner who can assist you with this. There are times when you are at the end of your rope and you need to sort of hand your kids over to your partner. Or if you are a single parent and you happen to have a family member nearby, say, please, I need a break. I'm not, I, I need like a half hour. Can you please come over mom or sister or partner to just take them. I need a break. I'm not holding it together. That's mm. important to know about yourself. That's good. And it's okay to ask for that. Mm -hmm. So the last C then, celebration. What does oh, this, this look is like? So important. So because kids with ADHD or kids who are alternative learners receive so many negative messages, they develop a pattern of negative self-talk. Dr. Barbara Fredrickson wrote a book called Positivity in which she said that she thought that the ratio should be three positive statements for every negative statement. And I've traveled all around the country and internationally talking to parents. And I ask, how many negative statements do you think your child has for every positive statement? So you have one positive, how many negatives? And it should be three positives to one negative. Most people say it's anywhere from 10 to, to 25 negative statements for one positive. 
And mm -hmm. I've asked kids and they say it's the same. One girl even told me it was 30 when she combined what she said to herself and other people said to her. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of work to do. So this doesn't mean we're going to bake a cake because your child decides to clear the table. What this means is we're giving authentic praise and recognition for things that your child is doing that you have asked them to do. And this is important because we're noticing the process as much as the end goal. Mm -hmm. And for these kids, that process, noticing the process encourages them to keep going. And I know there's lots of opinions out there about why you shouldn't praise your kids. And that's fine. Those are not kids with ADHD. Mm -hmm. Those are not kids who struggle with learning challenges mm -hmm. or kids who are on the spectrum. These kids actually need to hear the positives more and yeah. so try to find something. If the only thing that you like about your child is that they do Lego and they pet the dog nicely, then that's what you're going to focus on, right? And so that means really noticing how your child is trying to change things and picking one thing to change at a time. When you want your child to change five things at one time, they're not going to succeed because people can really only change one, maybe two things at a time. Uh, this kind of reminds me of, uh, I don't know if it's my own tendency or one that I've learned over time, but sometimes it feels like receiving affirmation even mm -hmm. needs to be earned. Or maybe children who are yeah. so to getting so many negative things, they're in trouble all the time, right? Mm -hmm. And because of the behavior. But then if I do this, then, and, and then it can kind of turn into this transactional relationship. Like I only get positive things or I only deserve good things when I work for it. But that's mm -hmm. kind of counterintuitive to this idea of, you know, unconditional love. Like you are valuable because you are not for what you do. Do you see ADHD kids and even adults dealing with this? Oh, absolutely. Most of them have an enormous dose of shame they're living with and low self-esteem about being different, about not measuring up. And so, of course, it's worth saying to your child, I love you because I love you, because you're um, warm and caring and a good brother and a great son. And I noticed when you cleared your play from the table, thanks so much, here's a high five, mm -hmm. right? Or, uh, wow, you know, you said, you know, we had a goal for you to set the table uh, with your sister every night and you did it four out of the five times. That's pretty fantastic. That's so much, that's a big improvement from last week when you did mm -hmm. it twice, yeah. you know? So yeah. you're, what I call, and I, and this is actually related to, to, to consistency because I call this efforting. When kids are trying to make changes, they're consistently making these efforts to be different. We want to acknowledge them in their trying, not necessarily in the things they're doing, but the fact that they're applying themselves. This is about who you are, not what you are. Absolutely. So Dr. Celine, what happens then when children go misdiagnosed with ADHD? Because if parents are just thinking, you know, they'll grow out of this, this is a phase, but it actually is a condition that needs more attention. You know, what do you see that happens to teenagers and then young adults who don't get the support that they need in their home at an early age? Honestly? They suffer, mm. they struggle, their self-esteem takes a huge hit, they lack confidence. So we want to try to notice the signs of ADHD in our kids, of learning challenges, and get them the support they need as early as possible, and it's never too late. 
I mean, people are diagnosed when they're 50, 60, mm -hmm. and it assists them in putting the puzzle pieces of their lives into a picture. Like, oh, now things make sense. I understand. And so we want to assist kids in figuring out, you know, what's going on for them when they're struggling persistently. So what do you suggest then that parents do who may suspect that their child is struggling with this? So what's the very first step that they can take? Well, if you're homeschooling your child, I think the first step is to meet with your pediatrician or a family practitioner. If your child is in school, you may want to touch base with the teachers or their guidance counselor or adjustment counselor. Most likely they've been in touch with you already about some of the things they're seeing at school. Um, in order to get an ADHD diagnosis, you have to display six out of nine symptoms for a period of time, uh, usually six months or more, in two areas of your life. And so that would be school and work and home for kids. So we want to do a good assessment, and a good assessment is often conducted through the school system or privately, depending on what you want to do. But you want to get uh, some more information, and you want to talk I think it's important to talk to your medical provider because they will assist you. They've known your child for a long time, and so they're your ally in this process. And what then would you say is the value of having a diagnosis versus just trying to handle it on your own type of thing? You know, because mm -hmm. I hear parents say, well, I don't want to label my child. You know, how do I even talk to them about that? Or I don't want them to use it as a crutch or an excuse for their behavior. Like, how does one approach that in the healthiest emotional way possible? Well, you're going to take one step at a time, right? Mm -hmm. The benefit of having a diagnosis is not so that your kids can walk around and say, I have ADHD, because I actually feel like, you know, that label doesn't help them at all. Um, mm -hmm. I prefer kids to describe their brains to me separately, like attention wandering, fast brain, dreamy brain, jumpy brain, you know, kids have some ideas of how their brains work. Mm -hmm. But the benefit of having a diagnosis is that you as a parent have a roadmap of what sorts of resources, tools, support your child is either mandated to receive or you can locate for your child and for yourself. One of the best places for parents to look is CHAD, which is, I think, chadd.org. I hope I got that right. And if you're an adult with ADHD, you could check out ADA, A-D-D-A-H, uh, also I think .org, it might be .com. I'm sorry to listeners, I'm, I'm not great at memorizing other people's websites. <laughs> okay, we'll have it all in the show notes, it's fine. Okay, great. And because there's lots of things available for you, you also might want to check out attitudemag.org. This is a huge resource. It has tons and tons of information for parents, for adults, for kids if they want to learn something about themselves. Understood.org is another great resource. They actually have little videos of kids who have attention issues talking about their experiences. So, you know, when you have a diagnosis, it helps position you on how you're going to take this journey and offers different paths. And I think that's really helpful for parents rather than feeling like you're flailing about on your own. Thank you so much. Dr. Celine, you have been just a wealth of information, but also a beautiful version of empathy, because I think we Thank needed you. a reason, uh, just other markers to be able to point to, to say, okay, I know that it doesn't have to be this hard, you know, yeah. and at Practical Family, I'm all about helping to strengthen moms for very mm -hmm. real life struggles. And when yeah. you cannot understand why your child is acting the way they are, you can't seem to get control over that. It makes you feel as a parent like 
you're not doing it right, you know, or doing your Absolutely. job. Absolutely. And the thing that's really great about Chad is Chad offers parent support groups. Mm. And, you know, this isn't about doing it right or wrong. This mm. is about meeting needs. I'm personally interested in doing more of what works and less of what doesn't. And mm. if you're raising a child with ADHD, it is frustrating. It is so frustrating. And at times that you just are beside yourself. And that's okay. You're not alone. Other parents are struggling this way. And so um, there are plenty of Facebook groups that support parents with ADHD. And I want you to be able to access that support so you're not out there drowning by yourself. Thank you so much, Dr. Sharon. Well, this has been the Practical Family Podcast. I'm Jennifer Bryant, your host. And today we've been talking about how to handle the emotions and all of the after effects that come when you're living with a child with ADHD. Dr. Celine, you've offered many great resources here, and I will definitely be pointing them to your website. Where can they find you for more information? Thanks so much for mentioning that. My website is www.drsaline.com. I also encourage you to follow me on Facebook at drsaline, Dr. Celine. I think it's at Dr. Sharon Celine, excuse me. And I post all kinds of information on my, on my website, of course, but also on my Facebook page, articles, resources that I find interesting. So it's a good place to stay connected. I also do Facebook Lives where I really uh, welcome people's input and questions. So please connect with me. And I'm super excited because I just have launched an ADHD solution deck, which is a card deck of 50 strategies to help you as parents learn various tools. You can work your way through the deck. It's based on the five C's, or you could just pick a card like, oh my God, I'm going to lose it. What should I do? I need a self-control tip. And there it is right there for you. <laughs> so I, I encourage you to check that out. It's also on Amazon as well. Awesome. Awesome. Yes. This deck is so pretty. It's so pretty. You definitely I have to show it. I'm so excited. because oh, Yes. If you're watching this uh, episode on YouTube, you get to see Ellen right now. Yeah. Well, the ADHD solution deck. And I just love, I love when medical professionals and therapists come out with their own resources based on their own practice and their own, mm-hmm. you know, patients and everything. And you have done that for sure. So definitely check out, pick up, order um, Dr. Selene's book on Amazon, What Your ADHD Child Wishes You Knew, Working Together to Empower Kids for Success in School and in Life. And this book is written specifically to parents of kids ages 6 to 18. So it's right there in that schooling age. And check out more resources at our website at practicalfamily.org. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and Twitter. I'm Jennifer Bryant, and we are here to help to strengthen moms for real life struggles to help you to discover your gifts as a mother and embrace grace.